here on our first slide. Let me, oh, you know what? Here I am all ready to go and realized I left my presentation remote. Jeff, if I slide a USB thing, can you plug it in? It's on the right side. All right. I only thought I was ready this morning. Okay, so uh, we're in our study on uh, the doctrine of man, the uh, second unit in our series here, and we're in lesson number 10 on that, uh, the essential nature of man. We did this last week, but we didn't finish it last week. Uh, so I'm going to do something a little unusual um, in that I'm going to finish this lesson and then just do something on the side. I'm not going to go into the next lesson in the series. And um, I naturally sometimes uh, enjoy chasing rabbit trails. Um, so I'm allowing myself to chase rabbit trails uh, this morning. I don't know what that does to us time-wise. Sometimes I have thoughts to myself that we might end up finishing early. Like I feel like I don't have enough material and I'll finish early, and that hardly ever happens. <laughs> a lot of times when I think that to myself, I get to the end and run out of time. I don't even finish what I had there. So I have no idea. I'm, I'm not one who sits there and times myself ahead of time, uh, so I never really know exactly how long it's going to take each week. But normally I'm in a series, so I just go from one week to the next anyways. So I can do things like today, where I have less than last week. I didn't finish, <coughs> and yet we'll uh, continue today. All right, um, so I'm going to... Um, be kind of flipping uh, quickly through our slides here in the beginning. Um, going to our first slide in our study, three, na three views of man's nature, and looking at these three that are on here, trichotomy, dichotomy, and monism. Uh, these, um, so I'm going to fly through the things that we covered uh, last week and just do a quick review on them. Um, of course, the trichotomist view is that there are three parts to the essential nature of man. Uh, man has a body, soul, and spirit. And then the dichotomist view is that soul and spirit are essentially the same thing, so there's just two parts to man. And then the um, monist view, man is only one thing. You clearly can't separate soul from body. Like if body's dead, soul's dead. This is non-Christian view. We didn't even spend time talking about it because we're focusing on uh, scriptural views, uh, Bible views, and not non-Bible views. Um, but it's just to recognize there are views out there where there's no difference between body and soul and spirit. They're all connected, and you know the, the bummer about that view is your body's dead, you're just dead. And uh, obviously non-Christian view because it doesn't recognize that um, man has an eternal soul having been created in God. Okay. So these were um, uh, some thoughts that we'll fly through uh, that we looked at last week. Um, the scripture uses soul and spirit interchangeably as one thought that was in a number of verses that we looked at. Um, at death, the soul departs or the spirit departs. And again, we looked at verses that talked about that, where talked about at death the soul departed. And then in another verse talks about death, the spirit departed. Now this again is uh, from uh, the book Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. And I don't usually bring the book with me since I happen to have it today. I just figured I'd hold the book up. 
and um, he takes the position of a dichotomy. And so um, he's starting off by just pointing out some verses where the, the terms seem to be used interchangeably. And so we looked at some of those verses last week. What's that? A little light reading. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thick book. Um, and, it, and really, in some ways, it's kind of, I think of it as a reference uh, book, um, although you could just read it. But. Okay, um, the next point on this slide, again, the slide, Bible verses on soul and spirit. Man is either body and soul or body and spirit. It's a number of verses that talk about body and soul or body and spirit. And then both the soul and spirit have the ability to sin. Um, talks about there being sin involved. Now, think one reason to think about that is sometimes in the trichotomous view spirit is associated more with that part of you that can most directly commune with God um, such as someone who's not saved yet not really having that ability like their spirit's dead um, there, there's no spiritual life in them so the spirit and having spiritual life can do that and so it's thought of as more pure um, but yet the scriptures sometimes speak of both as that ability to sin. By the way, we looked at the definition of soul under a trichotomous view, having more to do with the will and the intellect and the emotions. And so we know that we can sin, you know, in our will and our emotions, make decisions that are wrong. Um, but in the trichotomous view, the spirit doesn't do that so much because the spirit is not the will and the intellect and the emotions. It's the spiritual life all right, and then soul and spirit are said to do the same thing. So there's a number of verses we looked at um, where that was put forth. Okay. So then uh, last week we looked at four viewpoints on the next slide, arguments for trichotomy. And the points on the slide are all Bible uh, verses. So what we're going to do today is go to the next slide after. Uh, oh, that's right. I tried to do that last week too. There's three additional points, arguments that are made in favor of trichotomy, arguments that come from personal experience, um, argument that our spirit is what makes us different from animals. So if, you, what, if that weren't true, then how are we really different? Would be the argument. Our, and then lastly, our spirit is what comes alive at regeneration, and I commented on that just a moment ago. Okay. So this brings us closer, if we go to the next slide, responses to arguments for trichotomy. And we see here the first uh, four points in the slide. We'll make them the same as, as what we had. On, um, so essentially a response. Um, I could say a rebuttal. This is not Christian versus non-Christian. and So I'm going to repeat that point that I made last week. There's Bible-believing Christians that are trichotomous, and there's Bible-believing Christians that are dichotomous. And so uh, these are not clearly talked about in Scripture. The Bible doesn't talk about how many parts there are to man. Um, so many of these would be, as pastors been talking about in services lately, they go beyond a clear biblical teaching to some logical conclusions based upon the Scripture. But whenever good Bible-believing Christians who care strongly about interpreting the Bible correctly don't agree on something, that, that to me is a good indicator that maybe this is not one of those things for us to fight over and, and uh, get into strong arguments over. 
Um, yet, it doesn't mean that there's no value to at least being aware of the issues and thinking about them. And so these things don't have a bearing upon our salvation. Um, they, they don't directly relate to our understanding of our, our sin problem, our understanding of how God meets that sin problem, and uh, whether a person goes to heaven or not. So they're not on that level. And so I think good uh, Christians can disagree on these, and such is life. Um, I've already mentioned last week that I, I would tend to lean towards the dichotomy view. I don't know that I lean there strongly so. Um, and it's not something that I care that much about, trying to figure out which way it is. Because we have a body, soul, and spirit either way. So the question is, is soul and spirit referring to the same thing or not? <coughs> if they are separate... that caused me to realize there's something true about me that I didn't realize was true before. And under the dichotomous, true, you, uh, dichotomous view, you still have a mind, a will, and an intellect. And you also have a spiritual side to you that we understand from Scripture we're spiritually dead before salvation. I, mean, I think all the major truths are still understood. It's just whether soul and spirit are connected or not. Um, so I don't see it as a major thing, um, but still an awareness of it um, can't hurt. Now, how's the temperature feel in the room? Is it, I'm feeling, I'm starting to feel warm, and I'm not sure if that's just me. Okay, starting to be warm? Okay, Jeff, would you mind the big green button on the control to the left side? Uh, see, yeah, leave it at 74 will probably work fine. Yeah, let's get it kind of. I think it might be a warm day today. I didn't look at the weather forecast. Does anyone know what the forecast high is supposed to be today? Okay, maybe that's what it's about. It was 70 degrees at about 8 o'clock this morning outside. I'm thinking, anytime it's 70 that early, I'm like, eh, okay. Get spoiled around here, so back east um, where my kids are at, especially in the summer, a lot of times it doesn't cool down much below 70 at night. Um, so... Yeah, it didn't get super cold last night. Maybe in the I think it, my outdoor thermometer showed it got as low as 62, which is not super low. So it didn't cool down a ton last night. So such is life. But let me get back on track. Um, but I was starting to get kind of warm up here. All right. So I don't really want to think of these as rebuttals. I don't. You know, it doesn't always need to be us versus them. Uh, it can just be a we. We Christians who have different views on this, um, the trichotomist would tend to say, here's arguments in favor of my view, and then the dichotomist, what would be the answer to some of those arguments? Because some of the arguments on the trichotomist side, I think, have some merit to them, and I can understand where one might say, no, I think, I think that indicates that soul and spirit are different, Okay, so in regards to our first point on the slide, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. In fact, maybe I'll have you guys have Bibles handy. Can I um, just have you read certain verses? Uh, there would be, um, and, and when we get to the 1 Corinthians 2, 14, we'll just read the first verse, I think, on that one. But um, who would take 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Crystal? How about Hebrews 4, 12? Uh, mom, 
Uh, how about 1 Corinthians 2, 14? And Jeff, since you kept getting beat out uh, by the ladies in the room, how about you take 2, 14 and 14, 14, just to make up for it? So now you feel better. You got bonus there. Okay. All right. Um, so, Crystal, if you would read 1 Thessalonians five twenty three. And so the key phrase there is your spirit and soul and body. And, of course, the trichotomous, as I said, I think there's arguments uh, to be put forth by the trichotomous view. And this is one of the main arguments, or one of their stronger ones, I would say. And uh, they would say that um, this indicates that there are three separate things. Now, I don't know that, sometimes I think arguments are overstated. Um, in, in a lot of areas. I've been alive long enough now to see Christians overstate the strength of many arguments from Scripture um, and not always think things through clearly or uh, maybe state something stronger than what they really have a right to state. Now, I have no problem for a trichotomist to state this as an argument in favor of it. I think there's a compelling side to that argument. It does say spirit and soul and body. So um, I think that's a reasonable argument with uh, the part that wouldn't be reasonable if we say, okay, then that proves it. Because I could, um, I could talk about someone, you know, like, how about my sister? I have one sister. What if I called her my sister and my friend? She, if I said sister and friend, does that now prove there's two separate things going on? It, it's possible to use the word and for two things that go together, um, it doesn't have to prove uh, that they're three completely separate things. As if I you know, said a sentence without saying who I'm talking about, I just said, I have a sister and friend. I could be speaking of one person who happens to be both, or I could speak of two separate people. And the fact that I use the word and does not prove that. And I think I read last week a uh, a section off of a website that was a, putting forth the trichotomous view. They did use the word prove. They said this pretty much this verse proves that they're separate. Mm. I think that's a little overstated um, on that. Now here's uh, Wayne Grudem's tri- uh, dichotomous uh, commentary on that. He says the phrase your bo- spirit and soul and body is by itself inconclusive. Paul could simply be piling up synonyms for emphasis, as is sometimes done elsewhere in Scripture. Now, by the way, this is kind of the transition point for last week. I read you this already. We actually stopped right after the Hebrews verse. But I'm going to start at the beginning of this slide afresh, and then we'll overlap and getting a running head start at the new material. Okay, but he simply could have been piling up synonyms for emphasis, as is sometimes done elsewhere in Scripture. For example... Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Does this mean that the soul is different from the mind? Remember the trichotomist view says the soul includes the thoughts, the intellect, the will, the emotions. But now you have a verse in the Bible that says, love God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Are soul and mind now separate? 
Well, in the trichotomous view, they're not. It's the soul represents your intellect, your mind. Okay, so does having the word and separating soul and mind prove that soul and mind are different from each other? And so he's pointing out, well, that's, okay, that's not, it's inconclusive. Now, he doesn't say flat out wrong. Could the trichotomist be right? Sure. Neither one is really that, you know, can you be that adamant on it? And I don't think that should really be our point. But he goes on to say, does this, um, uh, regarding that Matthew verse, does this mean that the soul is different from the mind or from the heart? By the way, the heart, um, referring to another verse in Mark 12, 20, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. If we go on the principle that such list of terms tells us about um, the scriptural thoughts on this, then if we also add spirit to this list, and perhaps body as well, we would have five or six parts to man. And that is certainly a false conclusion. No one really proposes that. Okay, um, he's, He says, and well, we have personal interpretation, it is uh, far better to, uh, to understand Jesus as simply piling up roughly synonymous terms for emphasis to describe that we must love God with all of our being. Because I mean, we have different parts to us. Love God with your mind. Love God with your heart, your emotions. Love God with your strength, your body. Um, love God with all of you. And I think that's the safest, best interpretation of that. Uh, even though those verses aren't commenting you know, on whether soul and spirit are different, just if we look at those verses, um, it's piling up synonymous terms. So therefore... When you read that phrase um, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, your spirit and soul and body, is it, is it putting forth the idea that those things are completely separate? That's not really the context um, of that passage. <clears throat> okay, he says, likewise in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul is not saying that soul and spirit are distinct entities, but simply that whatever our immaterial part is called, he wants God to continue to sanctify us wholly to the day of Christ. Okay. So I guess the question is, is, is 1 Thessalonians 5.23 hinting at three separate parts, trichotomy? Or is it not hinting at that? It's inconclusive. That's how Grudem opened up that. and you know, So I don't think we should be dogmatic on it. But there's some thoughts on it. Okay, I'm going to move on. Because uh, it's, it's not my goal really to try to convince any trichotomist in the room I think there might be or there might be dichotomists in the room and then there might be those of us who are like I haven't really put a lot of thought into this and and you might not be tempted to um, and that I'd be okay with that <laughs> so is it my goal this morning to try to convince everyone one way or the other more just to let you you know give you some things to think about um, share some thoughts from the scriptures on it and then move on from there okay so now the second point on the slide, Hebrews 4.12. Okay, um, let's see, um, Mom, you had that one, Hebrews 4.12. For the And so here again, the thought would be that if you, if the word of God can divide the soul from the spirit, they must be separate things. And so the trichotomist would point to that verse 
supporting that. Um, here's how Grudem mentions uh, thoughts, the dichotomous answer to that. This verse, which talks about the word of God piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, is best understood in a way familiar to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. The author is not saying that the word of God can divide soul from spirit, but he is using a number of terms, soul, spirit, joints, marrow, thoughts, and intentions of the heart, that speak of the deep inward parts of our being that are not hidden from the penetrating power of the word of God. If we wish to call these our soul, then scripture pierces into the midst of it and divides it and discovers its innermost intentions. And so you have to look at the verse and say, is, is it the intention of the verse to put forth that soul and spirit are separate, that's why they can be divided, or is it uh, hinting at something that's true. Again, probably would use the same word that Grudem used in the, under the first Thessalonians passage, inconclusive. Like from that passage, the passage is not, the topic of the passage is not talking about soul and spirit. The topic of the passage is um, really uh, talking about the, the ability of the word of God to dig right down into our lives and discern make discernment, to, to separate, um, which is really what discernment is. Um, discernment is the, you know, we can have discernment on things, and when we do, we have the ability to separate, to divide. Thus, um, a three-year-old does not have the discernment as to whether to cross the street or not. They cannot separate in their mind the safe time from the unsafe time. They can't divide the two. Um, so, therefore, we don't let them cross the street by themselves until they've developed that kind of discernment, um, even if they're paying attention. I, I've seen some cats do this, uh, where they're looking, and, and they could easily run across the road, but they don't know when to run across. And sometimes they're like, I'm going back. Or you see animals choose the wrong ones. Most of us have probably run over a squirrel in our area sooner or later. We Kind of a nasty, I hate that feeling, and you can feel it pop under your tires. I know, I just... <laughs> I mean, made some cringe in the room just thinking about it. Yeah, that poor squirrel. I mean, it, I'm watching squirrels on the side, and they see me coming from a long ways. But they choose the wrong time to run and the wrong direction to run. Bummer for the squirrel. Actually, I, I want to get rid of squirrels anyway. So, um, but uh, so I'm not. Uh, I'm not in too much sorrow. But it is a nasty sound. Okay. Um, was this passage uh, here in Hebrews meant to say that it's about showing that you can have soul and spirit divided, or is it getting right down into our lives and discerning things? Well, he goes on to say, um, let's see, where did I leave off here? Maybe I'll back up. Um, now, okay, let me start reading here. In all of these cases, the word of God is so powerful that it will search out and expose all disobedience and lack of submission to God. In any case, soul and spirit are not thought of as separate parts. They are simply additional terms for our innermost being. Like the Bible also is not intending to make a commentary on joints and marrow. Now we do understand joints and marrow as, as we define them are not the same thing. Um, um, thoughts and intentions of the hearts. I don't know. Some of our intentions are thoughts or those meant to be, again, pointed out as completely separate. Um, I don't think that's the intention. 
So I, I understand, I can see, you know, a, a certain argument there from the trichotomous view. Uh, but again, I think it's inconclusive. Um, it kind of brings up a general thought I shared last week that I think um, that too many Christians, and actually I shared it already today, too many Christians uh, make arguments that have some weaknesses in different ways. I don't mind weak arguments. Sometimes we have no choice. Like when you lack evidence, you come to the best conclusion you have, and you can't be stronger because you lack evidence that allows you to know more. It's like, say, for example, um, we know a certain amount about a black hole in space. Um, but we, we do lack information on them, so I don't know that we fully understand them. We, we can, we've detected and can understand certain things about them. But if we knew more, we might have a different view. So there might be some aspects of our understanding that are actually untrue. Um, that if we had a conversation with God on them, he would, he would set us straight. Well, I mean, we don't really have much of a choice. We, you know, mankind can try to understand a black hole as best they can, but um, we have limitations. And, and I don't think the scriptures are ever intended, there's no suggestion by God in the Bible that he has answered every question, that we understand everything completely. Um, the, uh, sometimes the Christian view is the sufficiency of scriptures. We don't need more than what God has given us. The Bible is sufficient for us to know how to behave in life, what to believe in life. All matters of faith and all matters of practice. So we know what faith should be, what it should be believe, what should be the core teachings of uh, the Christian faith, and our practice. What should we be doing? Uh, how should we be living? Um, but even as we have faith, we don't understand everything. We understand everything we need to know to live the Christian life successfully. But if God wanted us to clearly know whether soul and spirit were different, he would say so in Scripture. And some of the arguments to say that they're different, I, I think you know, there's a certain compelling to them, uh, but it's inconclusive. And the arguments for them not being the same, I think there's a certain compelling to them. But again, not conclusive, because the Bible just doesn't come right out and say here's what God says on it, you have three parts, or you have two parts. And so I think um, jumping to conclusions or overstating arguments, maybe getting lazy in our arguments. Um, uh, I'll, I'll mention something. I'm going to step aside again and grab another book. We'll come back to this one. I'll just use it as an example of something that I uh, like to do um, because I... To the best of my ability, I don't think all my thinking, all my arguments are always great because there's a limited time I have to study on things. Um, no one can be an expert on everything. And I'm not even more close to an expert on everything. I'm not even sure if I'm an expert on anything. I haven't figured that one out yet. Uh, but anyways, when I'm thinking through arguments, such as when, especially when Christians disagree, trichotomy and dichotomy, I think it's always helpful to hear what the other side says. One of the ways I think Christians can be a little lazy in their arguments is when we don't consider the other side's viewpoints. Because oftentimes you can say something that, wow, sounds really good, sounds so strong. And then you find out that, oh, okay, the other side points out a flaw in the argument I had never considered. I thought my argument was so slam dunk, you can't, you can't argue against it, so obvious that it has to be that way until I find out that those who don't hold to the view 
have some pretty good points as to why they don't go with that. It's like, ah, never, never thought about that. I haven't heard that viewpoint. And so I think that can be that way um, in Christianity, especially since in Christianity, many of us are meeting together in a local church where generally the reason we're all coming together at that local church is we have a lot of agreement with each other. And so if we're not careful then, we can say things within our own group that no one challenges. And yet there might be some things outside of our group that actually would say, well, here's why this group outside of our group wouldn't quite go with us on that. And, huh, they've actually got some arguments that make some sense and can be compelling, and I could see why maybe, you know, they might go that route. Okay. Um, so, anyways, this would be one example, just myself personally. I just like to sometimes hear things from uh you know, another viewpoint outside my own viewpoint. And so I was in a used bookstore, I think it was over in Monterey once, and just picked this up, I saw it on the shelf. Every Man's Guide to Judaism. So I'm going to read some things out of it in a little bit. This is one of the rabbit trails I'll do this morning. I hadn't really read that much of the book yet, and I was just using uh, today as an excuse, since I have time to run on a rabbit trail, of looking at some of the stuff in here. So it'll be off uh, topic this morning. But I think that, you know, it could be interesting just to see what a Jew says on that. Now, I'm not, um, I'm not contemplating conversion to Judaism um, or abandoning the Christian faith, nor do, do I find anything in here um, to be compelling arguments because um, looking to the scriptures for guide on that, a major difference, I think, between Judaism and Christianity is they reject the New Testament and they've rejected Christ as Savior and and they are locked in a lot of times to their interpretation of the Old Testament that comes from the rabbinic writings, the writings of the rabbis, uh, the oral traditions that are there, the, um, and so forth. So anyways, I'll come back to that book uh, here in a little bit. Um, but again, what I just talked about, again, can be Christian versus non-Christian, but it also can be within Christianity, so... Um, all right, now let me go to the next point here. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Jeff, would you read that verse? Okay. And so in this verse, okay, um, Paul distinguishes, certainly distinguishes a person who is natural from one that is spiritual. But what had been uh, pointed out is, if you look at the Greek words in this verse, there was a natural man, was one who was, and kind of literally the meaning of the word is soulish. And then it talks about spiritual man. Comes from a different Greek word, meaning more spiritual. So the argument then is, would not this indicate that the soul and spirit are different in this passage? But here's what Grudem says. But in this context, spiritual seems to mean influenced by the Holy Spirit, since the entire passage is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in revealing truth to believers. In this context, spiritual might also be translated um, spiritual. Let me say that again. (laughs) In this context, the word spiritual might also be translated spiritual. Now, if that makes no sense to you, I'll, I'll give you the part you need. <laughs> spiritual with a capital S might be translated spiritual with a capital S. Um, 
But the passage does not imply that Christians have a spirit, whereas non-Christians do not. Or that the spirit of a Christian is alive, while the spirit of a non-Christian is not. Paul is not talking about different parts of man at all, but about something under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That we're under the influence of the spirit, that's the spiritual man. That's what he meant by, we could think of as capital S, the Holy Spirit. We are spiritual as in being guided by the Spirit. So, uh, again, the thought is maybe inconclusive at best on that one. Yes, Jeff. Um, I misread that. It has two different verses. Before, but I was supposed to read up through. Uh, I just asked you to read only the first one. Okay. Yeah, so. It was a longer reading, so I decided uh, not to read the whole thing. But uh, and then the whole thing talks about the, those different aspects of man. All right, and then, but Jeff, would you read the next First Corinthians passage? First uh, Corinthians fourteen, verse four. Okay. Yeah, could you? Did you read that? Is that is that First Corinthians fourteen fourteen? Okay. Okay. I was gonna say, man, I'm forgetting the verse because I'm trying to think how that. Try to tie it in here. It's like, can you read that again? I must be, my uh, must be losing it here. Okay. Uh, yeah, my spirit prays. But my understanding is unfruitful. And remember in the trichotomous view, the understanding is part of the soul. And so does this indicate that the spirit's one thing, spirit can pray, but the understanding is unfruitful, less spiritual and separate things. Uh, Grudem says he does not uh, understand the context. Uh, He means he does not understand the context of what he is praying. He does not imply that there is a non-physical component to his being a spirit within him that can pray to God. But nothing in this verse suggests that he regards the spirit as different from the soul. Such a misunderstanding results only if it is assumed that mind is part of the soul, which is a trichotomous claim, as we noted before, and that that's very difficult to substantiate from Scripture. Paul probably could equally have said, my soul prays, but my mind is unfruitful. The point is simply that there is a non-physical element to our existence that can at times function apart from our conscious awareness of how it is functioning. All right, so we'll wrap up that slide and go to our next slide. Still responses to arguments for trichotomy, but these last three points on this slide, the first one be an argument from personal experience. So Gruta mentions... Um, what makes us different from animals? It is true that we have spiritual abilities that make us different from animals. We are able to relate to God in worship and prayer, and we have a spiritual life and fellowship with God who is spirit. But we should not assume that we have a distinct element called spirit that allows us to do this. For with our minds we can love God, read and understand his words, and believe his word to be true. So the question of whether an animal has a soul simply depends on how we define soul. If we define soul to mean the intellect, emotions, and will, then we will have to conclude that at least the higher animals have a soul, because they have the ability to think, to reason, or to be emotional. 
Um, but if we define our soul as we have in this chapter to mean the immaterial element of our nature that relates to God and lives forever, then animals do not have a soul. The fact that the Hebrew word nefesh, which means soul, is sometimes used of animals, shows that the word can sometimes simply mean life. It does not mean the animals had the same kind of soul as man. Or in other words, the argument is that if soul and spirit aren't different, then animals are no different than us. Because sometimes the Bible does speak of an animal with a soul, meaning life within it. Um, the dichotomous view is, yes, yeah, sometimes it is used that way, but sometimes words have different uh, usages. All right, and then does our spirit... Uh, well, I guess I covered two and one, didn't I? How did I? I feel like I skipped one there. Oh, I know why. Because I just had my own thoughts on the first one, and they're not even typed in here. I kind of touched on that last week. You know, I think arguments from personal experience are a little, you know, weak. Where some uh, use their own personal experience to support that, and that's sometimes what some trichotomists use. I imagine dichotomists too. We all tend to use that some. Well, you know, based upon my life experiences, this seems more correct or whatever so i'm not going to spend a lot of time on that point um, but does our spirit come alive at regeneration okay grudem says the human spirit is not something that is dead in an unbeliever but comes to life when someone trusting christ because the bible talks about unbelievers having a spirit that is obviously alive but in rebellion against god okay. now we might say well wait, i thought natural man's dead they're not alive. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess we'd have to maybe say is dead, we were dead in trespasses and sin, is, is that the same thing as non-existent? Yeah, any person who dies without God is going to live somewhere forever and it won't be with God. Um, if soul and spirit are the same thing, well then mankind without God, the natural man, has... It has a part of his being that's going to live somewhere forever. And so the question is, if God means to separate those two, does the Bible clearly teach that spirit, there is no life, no spirit at all uh, in mankind before he's saved? But the Bible does speak about this. Now here's some examples. Um, Sihon, king of Heshbon in Deuteronomy 2.30, the, the Lord hardened his spirit. Wait, this is an ungodly man if he had no spirit. How would the Lord harden his spirit? Or Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 5.20, his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. Or the unfaithful people of Israel in Psalm 78.8, their spirit was not faithful to God. Okay. Or when Paul says, your spirits are alive because of righteousness in Romans 8.10, he apparently means alive to God. But he does not imply that our spirits were completely dead before or non-existent, only that they were living out of fellowship with God and were dead in that sense. In the same way, we are whole persons. We, as whole persons, were dead in trespasses and sins. That's Ephesians 2.1. But we remain alive in God, and we now must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's Romans 6.11 wording. It is not just that one part of us called the Spirit has been made alive. We as whole persons are a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. So again, I mean, I could, you know, I could see certain ways of understanding or trying to take that. But I'd say inconclusive at best and 
I don't know, I lean towards the trichotomist view as being a little bit stronger uh, than, I'm sorry, the dichotomist view being a little bit stronger than the trichotomist. Okay, end that presentation. And I got about 10 minutes. Um, to chase a rabbit trail. I don't know if I'll get to all the rabbit trail or not. Like I said at the beginning, I often think I'm going to run out of time. I mean, I'm going to have all this extra time at the end. It never happens. <laughs> now, yeah, we'll see if I get to this. Uh, I'll maybe try to move quickly because I'm not going to come back to this later. Um, Every Man's Guide to Judaism. Um, if you weren't in here before, I just mentioned I might get off on a rabbit trail and uh, share some things out of here. Um, why would I want to read this? I mean, I don't know if you care to hear this or not. My own personal thought on it is, how did, you know, I mean, the Jews, they, obviously, there's Jews in the Bible, and they were God's chosen people, and I'm interested to hear how they understand things. Um, one of the things I think to myself is maybe the Jews have a, a, an understanding of Scripture that would help me understand the Scripture better. Do they see something um, in their in their culture and in their history that would help me understand something better about them. And um, the, the uh, culture of the early church is obviously Jewish-based. And so I can't say um, that I had anything in this reading today where I, I think to myself, I really understood the Bible better from it. But I did understand a few things about Judaism uh, better from it. And so I'll read a few things. Uh, the first chapter has a lot to do with, I don't know if I'm pronouncing some of these Hebrew words right, uh, but then you don't know any more than I do, so you can't correct me. But someone online might be able to correct me, so sorry. Okay. Shabbat, or the Sabbath. Okay. Uh, when most people think of holidays, they think of annual celebrations. And we're talking about holidays in the Bible. Okay, but in Judaism, there was one holiday that occurs every week the Sabbath, known in Hebrew as Shabbat. Well, I hadn't really thought of the Sabbath as a holiday, but apparently in the Jewish mind, they think of that as a weekly holiday, a weekly, and which I guess when I think of the word holiday, a holy day, uh, okay, yeah, it makes sense, and they, um, apparently many Jews try to treat that special. So I'll read some of the Jewish description of it. In accordance with the Jewish calendar, uh, the Sabbath begins on Friday evening at sunset, and ends on Saturday night. Now, one thing I always thought in my mind, it ends on Saturday night at sunset. I figured 24 hours. Uh, but they actually say ends Saturday night with the appearance of three stars. Okay? All Jewish days begin at sunset. Okay, so here's something else I didn't realize where they might got their thinking from. This reckoning is based on the wording of the creation story in Genesis 1. As the end of the description of each day, we find the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning. Since evening is mentioned first, the ancient rabbis deduced that evening is first. Um, so therefore, they start at sundown. Okay, so then, I'm just skipping around to some different uh, thoughts here. Uh, Friday and Saturday commence automatically. But Shabbat takes place only when we make it happen, so it has to be intentional. We prepare for Shabbat by the clothes we wear, uh, by the meals we eat, by the lighting of Shabbat candles, and by chanting the Kiddush, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, 
over while we set apart the special title. And so they just have special things they do. They try to make it a special event, essentially, is what that's saying. Now, messianic expectations, so they have a little discussion here, the concept of the Messiah. Messianic expectations developed over time. It is the fully developed form of this idea that the Messiah would, so here's the Jewish thoughts on what the Messiah would be. Establish himself as king. Gain independence for the Jewish people in their own land. Be an ideal king. And with God's help, establish peace, justice, brotherhood, not only for the Jews, but for all the world. Uh, interesting, he goes on to say, I didn't highlight this part, but um, talks about um, how there's been a, a number of people over time that have claimed to be the Messiah, and mentions Jesus. It says, well, Jews wouldn't accept Jesus as Messiah because he didn't do the things that Messiah is expected to do. Now, they do comment on the Christian view that um, there'll be a second coming of the Messiah where he'll fulfill those things and basically saying, well, we're not going to accept that until we see that the Messiah actually does all the things the Messiah is going to do. We're not going to accept him as Messiah, but he was, a, he was a teacher that we can acknowledge as a, uh, a teacher. Um, but in those four things, well, I mean, he didn't really at that time establish himself as king. Uh, he didn't gain independence for the Jewish nation. And he did not, uh, he did not um, show himself at that time to be an ideal king, because he didn't even establish as a king. And he didn't establish peace, justice, and brotherhood on earth. So therefore, we don't accept him as a Messiah. So, Okay, now that actually still falls within the uh, context here of the Sabbath. And they just have a little discussion um, in that context of the Messiah. I won't get into how it ties in, but I'm going to move it along. Okay, so um, classic Jewish theology. Let's see, actually, hold on. Make sure if I want to uh, read this right now. Oh, yeah, okay. I was making sure it was a continuation of the Messiah topic. Um, Jews as God's chosen people. Classic Jewish theology from the Bible onward has mentioned that a special relationship exists between God and the Jewish people. Uh, this idea, referred to as the chosen people concept, is one of the most misunderstood concepts within Judaism. Um, chosenness does not mean that Judaism teaches that Jews are better than everyone else in the world. It does not mean that Jews are elected for salvation. Uh, Judaism does not deny that God's love extends to all humanity. Now, when I do read that, by the way, I do think to myself, probably there are those within Judaism that do hold to some of those concepts. Trying to say that all Jews believe the same thing is like trying to say all Christians believe the same thing. Eh, wrong answer. There's so much division within Christianity, all kinds of variations of it. Uh, Judaism would be no different. And they hint at some of the different groups in Judaism, such as Reformed Jews and Orthodox Jews and so forth. Um, so there's a whole section here, which I marked potentially uh, to read, um, but maybe for sake of time... I won't. I'm just kind of skimming here. Let's see. All right, let me just read this part. Um, the result of this process of deriving it called Midrash. Let's see, actually, hold on. Um, 
Okay, when reading, I'm trying to find where they actually say the topic. When reading about, our, about the Israelites' acceptance of the commandments... Okay. All right, I need to come up further. The Torah says that when God gave the commandments to the people of Israel, the people responded, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will hear. Jews have never been satisfied to take, uh, to take the biblical test at face value, but have always... Um, you know what, I just got to thinking... I do have my glasses here. Why don't, why don't I put those on? Some of this is uh, taking me longer to read because I have to hold it back and try to... Duh. <laughs> Actually, I, sometimes I don't have them here with me. So, I'd... Okay, so where am I? All right. Um, Jews have never been satisfied to take the biblical text at face value, but have always delved deeply into all of its ramifications. Now, what they're saying there is the Jews often want to contemplate deeper and figure out the meaning of certain things. But... Um, when they responded, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do in Exodus 24, 7. Um, they have uh, three interpretations of why Israel is God's chosen, chosen people. According to one interpretation, the Israelites were not God's first choice to receive the Torah. In fact, God had offered it to many other nations, but each of them had refused it. Only the Israelites were willing to say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will hear. Only they would accept the obligation of the covenant. In other words, the Jews were chosen, but they were not the first choice. Okay, so here's a second interpretation amongst Judaism. It prevents a much different view. In this midrash, or this viewpoint within that, those teachings, the Israelites weren't all that willing to accept the Torah. Only when God threatened to drop Mount Sinai on them, if they refused the Torah, did they respond. <laughs> all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will hear. In this version, the people may have felt that they were not adequate to the task, but they were compelled to rise to the challenge. Okay. Very frankly, even after considering these interpretations of chosenness, some Jews are still not completely comfortable with the notion, so they interpret the concept more broadly. Rather than speaking in terms of God choosing the Jews, they understand chosenness to mean that the Jews chose God and the way of the Torah. For some Jews, even this interpretation is not acceptable. The Reconstructionist movement, for instance, rejects the notion of chosenness entirely and has changed those prayers that refer to chosenness. So like I said, you can't get all Jews to agree with each other on that. But of course, our understanding generally, at least here in our church, is God chose the Jews as his chosen people for his own purpose. For his own purposes, I don't know why. God says he didn't do it because they were the greatest of the people. He says, you're one of the weakest people on earth, the least of the nations. All right, what time we have here? So a couple quick things. It is customary to light two candles to welcome the Sabbath. Each candle represents uh, one of the things you're supposed to do on the Sabbath. You have to remember the Sabbath day and to observe it. And so they light two candles to represent that. Some light more candles uh, to represent their, the children in the family. And some, some will actually do one candle per child. Okay, um, Community is important, so they often will then come together on the Sabbath day at the local synagogue uh, to celebrate the Sabbath, uh, sing songs, read the Torah, and talk about, have some talks on it, um, sermon, kind of like a sermon, I suppose. Um, let's see. And then they have a little ceremony at the end of the Sabbath um, called the Havdalah, which means separation. 
and that takes Saturday night after sunset to kind of end the Sabbath day. Um, rest and worship are two essential elements of Shabbat. Um, there is a third one that is of equal importance, and that is study. So Shabbat affords us time in which to direct our energies towards spiritual matters. Study is an appropriate way to observe Shabbat. In fact, in Judaism, study is considered a form of worship. Study is done publicly at services by means of the Torah reading and its explanation, and privately by reading and discussing materials from Jewish books, magazines, and newspapers with family and friends. Okay, so that's kind of the section on the Sabbath, some of the main things I wanted to read there. Um, now, I know I put a, a calendar up here, and since it might, I don't know when I'll come back to I just thought it was kind of interesting um, that I had something come up in the next chapter, which was um, going into the High Holy Days, and talked about uh, Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the High Holy Days, as occurring in the month Tishri. And they made a statement, that's the beginning of the New Year. And I think, wait a minute, I didn't think that was the beginning of the New Year. I thought the beginning of the New Year was in the springtime. So now I'm looking up some things and and you know, I go back to this that I had shown in Sunday school previously, the beginning of the new year in the month Nisan, going back March, April. And I did uh, look up online trying to understand that more and uh, found that there's actually, um, there's a biblical new year, which is like what we have on uh, the screen here. Uh, but then many Jews have marked their calendar as starting with Tishri, uh, basically uh, focused on that Day of Atonement. So most Jews actually look at that nowadays as the beginning of the year, even though the Bible talks about the Day of Atonement falling in the seventh month of the year. Many Jews, though, now uh, start their calendar with that this event. Um, Hash Roshanah, uh, which is the Feast of Trumpets, uh, kicking off uh, seven days, I think it's seven days before um, the Day of Atonement. Uh, which is Yom, I'm going to make sure I'm right, Yom Kippur. Um, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. And so anyways, I thought it was, okay, oh, interesting, all right. Uh, I didn't know Jews thought that way. All right, I was going to maybe talk a little bit more about those two holidays, but for another time. Let's go ahead and uh, close our time in, trail, uh, in, in prayer. I'm done 